Nice thing about inventing the future is nobody can tell you you're wrong. Welcome back to another episode of the Making Magic Podcast. I'm Sean Jay, your host, and I'm a professional magician, speaker, and 3D designer. And this is all about inspiring conversations with the movers, the shakers, the visionaries, and the makers. The wizards behind the curtain that make the magic for you. Now, if it's your first time joining us, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to watch this stuff. I really do appreciate that. And if you're enjoying everything so far, feel free to click the red subscribe button and the notification bell to stay up to date when I release my next episode. Perhaps you're just listening to the sound of my voice on one of the many popular podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. I'm there. We're all there on all the shows. Any popular podcast platform, you will find me. Hopefully, you'll enjoy this show enough to leave a healthy five-star review because it's enriching your day and making it a little bit more exciting and educational. So that's my goal here. And with all of that being said, let's learn a little bit more about our next guest. He's been named one of Fast Company's top 100 most creative people in business. And he's also the past president of research and development for the Walt Disney Company. There, he was responsible for many of the ideas, designs, and concepts for many of the popular attractions like Test Track and the Tower of Terror. And his 2014 TED Talk has been translated into 27 different languages and viewed over a million times. He's pioneered technologies and staging concepts for music legends like Depeche Mode, Pink Floyd, David Bowie, and even Paul McCartney. And his recent vehicle project, The Kiravan, has been featured in Wired magazine. Some of his past and present clients include Sony, the Library of Congress, Intel, and the Smithsonian Institute. And he's also a prolific inventor named on hundreds of foreign and domestic patents, one of them being the well-known pinch-to-zoom gesture that we all are familiar with on our smartphones. He's currently the co-founder and chief creative officer of Applied Minds LLC, which for the past 20 years has provided advanced technology, creative design, and consulting services to both commercial and government clients. So guys, I am so excited to start off 2022 with this epic interview with the one and only Bran Farron. Check it out. Hey, Brand, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to Making Magic. It's great to have you here. Hey, pleasure to be here. Yes, this is going to be a fun chat. I've done a little research on you. This is just uh, mind-blowing, first of all, that you've agreed to be on my show. Uh, and actually, I, I, I want to. <laughs> I was going to open with a different question, but my first question is, uh, with all your accomplishments and, and accolades, why? What? What was the driving force to make you say yes to be on my show? What, why did you even? Hard to say no to a magician, you know. Okay, okay, it was as simple as that. All right. Based on you, it's. Okay, okay. Well, uh, I like to open the show 
with uh, a story. And it's not my story, it's your story. And I'd like you to tell me uh, a story about the very first thing that you made or you invented or created. And you are a creative guy. Uh, and my audience is going, the listeners and viewers are going to learn a lot more about what you've created. But what was that first thing? And it could be good, bad, or funny stories are always welcome too. So I'll let you take it from here. Well, I think the first thing I did was actually small appliance repair. I was told by my parents that while I was crawling around as an infant, and I get, you get to define that because I don't think they ever told me, I found a knob under a table from the television set and replaced it in the correct position. So um, apparently small appliance repair is where my real talent is. Small appliance repair. Apparently, yes. So I've been misguided with all the other things, but if you want your television repaired, um, <laughs> the toddler to do it. Okay, okay. Because so, sometimes, uh, I'm sure you've heard of the, the term, um, a child ch look, looking at looking at things with a child's mind, right? Yeah. Well, I think if you're going to be a designer, that being able to retain that childlike curiosity, so you can look at the world as if it's this wondrous thing that you've never seen before and appreciate on that level, I think that's actually a pretty essential skill. It's an essential skill that it's often. It's, it's so easily stripped away just by living life and going through the standard construct of society. It's, it's culture, right? It's, it's school. It's yeah. all things which basically say you need to grow up. And it turns out you don't actually need to grow up. Um, for some things, perhaps it's ample. But for others, it uh, really stands in your way. Right, right. That, that, that is, I mean, right off the bat, right off the bat, folks, we're getting so much value and important reminders of things we need to just be more aware of because a lot of people they think by going to college and going to school and i'm not discounting that at all people can do whatever they like but oftentimes people assume that is the only way that you can become uh, innovative or creative or or uh, be successful but uh, sometimes it, it just takes that childlike mind and that openness rather than going through a construct that closes you down and forces you to be one thing, you're, you're always open to all these possibilities, I'm sure, right? Well, look, I think growing up is overrated. Um, it has some merit here and there, but I think you know, that uh, we live in an amazing world in an amazing time, and that comes with good news and bad news, as does always. And so the question is, how do you make the most of each day? And hopefully leave our world a little better than the way you found it. Simply said, easy enough. If only more people would, would adhere to that, right? <laughs> well, like, I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to cure cancer every day. Making a child smile or laugh or opening their mind to possibilities they hadn't considered or showing them how simple things can fit together and build more complicated things. I mean, all of those things I think are noble and important. And if you're going to be a parent, then your job is to show your child the wonders of this world so they can hopefully find their own way. Um, I don't think it's effective to tell them what they should be or how they should do it, because therefore you end up with a lot of people who end up being lawyers or doctors or podiatrists and are miserable, um, probably even a few miserable magicians. But the idea <laughs> that um, 
you, you're never going to be great at anything unless you're passionate about it. And so helping young people find those passions, I think, is um, a major contribution. That's, that's so true. That's, that's great. Excellent. Excellent answer. Perfectly stated. And what was the reason why, well, <laughs> I guess you were so young at the time, maybe there wasn't a reason, um, but, but fixing the television, was there a reason that you could remember for doing it? Was it just out no, of No, I can't remember the event at all. I mean, uh, so uh, for me, it was just a random childhood story. Okay. Uh, you can try to correlate the notion of spatial orientation and correlation, and some people um, have aptitude in that. So that it's just like in IQ tests, when you're shown an object rotated into different positions in two or three dimensions, some people have an easy time making those rotations in their head. Some people can't do it at all. But that notion of spatial orientation, um, pattern matching, and so forth, um, apparently that's something I was able to do then in a way that at least surprised my parents hmm. <laughs> than anything else. Apparently, I also nearly did myself in because I, on the kitchen table, we had understood the mechanism of a wing nut in such a way I was unscrewing the pieces that held the table legs on while I was under the table. Oops. <laughs> it was a nearly um, brilliant career terminated by wing nuts. But um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I think uh, part of how we learn about our world is to get into trouble and hopefully in a way that's um, more recoverable than less recoverable. Get into trouble and break stuff. <laughs> <laughs> You break stuff and then you and then you fix it again, or you, or maybe maybe it's maybe it's never broken. Maybe broken is just a it's just a concept. Yeah. Well, and the idea is um, that exploration. How do you learn to build things? Well, you generally learn how to build things by taking them apart. And so, you know, that process of as a kid or as an adult being able to take things, deconstruct them, understand them. Uh, you know, there are some people who look at a magic trick right. and, you know, to them on one level, they're just bewildered and fascinated and entertained. And there are other people where it starts a cycle of trying to understand that and try to do it themselves. And a lot of those people end up being magicians <laughs> because they see it and it inspires them to learn how that was done, where again, mm -hmm. people just don't engage. And so that's the challenge is how do you find the things that causes cause people to engage in a way that allows them to grow, expand their knowledge, et cetera. And I think if you can find a way to do that, then ultimately it sets you on a path, whether that's for a career or for an entertainment or just simply learning more about the world. You know, everything you do doesn't have to be for a profession or doesn't have to be uh, a quest for knowledge. It can simply be because it gives you pleasure. Sure, that's true. There's different reasons, different motivations for doing things. That's true. Let's uh, let's try. How about something that uh, you remember more? That was more um, had a more definite, uh, more more of a guided, like a goal in mind. Like so. Let's fast forward a little bit. Maybe I don't know to your teens or your early twenties, where there was something that you clearly remember. That you well, made. I mean, for me, um, I started working in the rock and roll business with local bands um, at school and such, 
doing their lighting and doing their sound. And um, that was interesting to me. So while other people were interested in being a performer, I was interested in how you bring the stage to life and what can you do with lighting and what can you do with sound to complement what the artists were doing in a way that extends their reach and abilities. So I started early on designing and building special lighting systems for discos and for dance venues and for concert hall venues. And so, you know, that's when I was, you know, probably 13, 14, I started doing oh. those things and found that to be a lot of fun. That was pretty young, 13, 14, to be doing all of those things. Or ancient, depending upon how you look at it. That's true. See, that's what we, we keep, we keep getting back to that, that whole, I think that's part of your secret, secret sauce there that, that you're never, you refuse to get locked into one frame of mind or, or believe one standard way of thinking. That's the whole reason why you come up with these. Uh, you know, the, the important thing is not to take yourself too seriously. So the idea is when people start taking themselves seriously, um, believing that what they're doing is important, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that sends you off into the wild blue yonder. It's, I think, important to do what you enjoy, learn what you're good at, and again, try to make a contribution. That contribution can be showing people things they've never seen before, entertaining them, or it could be curing cancer, or it can just be moving the chair to the other side of the room. There are bigger contributions and smaller contributions. But for me, I think that I've never had a career path, never been particularly interested in one thing. I just like doing new things and providing I'm doing new things that are interesting and engaging, that's good enough for me. And, and that's, that's actually a really, cool way to live you know because you're never bored right you're always you always have something to to keep your mind active you know, i mean it may be not n normal for you but most people they just they go to school or they or they decide on one thing and then they just go this is what i'm going to do for the rest of my life and they're just kind of semi satisfied but you're always like you're, you're constant you're constantly uh, being stimulated by these creative paths that you're taking. Well, I, you know, it's just like when when you ask me, what's the favorite project I've ever done? You know, the answer is simple. It's the next one. So, you know, for me, I'm not nostalgic. Any time you spend thinking about what you've done in the past, journaling, all of that stuff that people love to do, to me, it's just a total waste of time. All of that comes out of the time you've got available to create, invent, and do new things. And so I'd rather take that time instead of being reflective. And again, it's not that it's evil to be reflective. And often while you're doing your work, you need to be reflective and think about what you've done, what you could do better. I've never really been happy with anything I've done. It always could have been better. And so you know, but you keep moving forward. And again, I think that while reflecting upon what you did to learn how to do it better is an essential part of design and engineering and so many other things. At the same time, when you're dwelling on your past or dwelling on issues or focusing on problems rather than solutions, you know, you're just wasting time that you're never gonna get back. 
these minutes we have alive are very short and precious. And you might as well make the most out of them because you're, trust me, you're not getting them back. We have created institutions whose sole job is to trade you money for time. They're called hospitals. And you give them money, they give you more time. The more money you have, the more time they can give you up until a certain point. You know, when we're kids, we have no notion of time, right? So right. You know, we have no sense of our own mortality, no sense of, of that. Um, and in fact, when you look at value, we often teach our kids that money is what's important. You have to focus and work hard and get a job, you know, or you're not going to be able to feed yourself or have a family or, or do all of those things. Um, mm -hmm. Give people allowances. We teach them about that. As you get older and you do get a sense that you may not live forever, um, that sense of time becomes important. I mean, it's actually not until about 25 till the part of our brain develops that allows us to understand consequences, which is why we send 19 year olds to war because they don't understand the consequences and why kids do a lot of dumb things. It's because if you don't think you can die doing the stuff that you're doing or you think that applies to other people, uh, it emboldens you. Then a little part of your brain kicks in and says, hey, this might not be such a great idea. And so as you get older, time takes on more and more meaning. And again, about 15 minutes before you're going to drop dead, trust me, it takes on a whole new meaning. And so, you know, my sense is our job while we're here is to maximize our productive time and um, do our things to help make a contribution. And uh, again, if you're going to spend your time dwelling on negative things, that just takes out of your time to do positive things. So true. So true. So true. Limited time. Use time wisely. Use our time to create positive, productive, creative, innovative things. You're, you're literally, I mean, you're known for kind of like designing the future, you know, and because and you're more future minded, like how can we make this continue to make it better or create something totally new and better rather than uh, this, this and that and the other, that was all, all the problems. Who cares, right? Just move forward, onward, right? Nice thing about inventing the future is nobody can tell you you're wrong. That is, that's very true too. It's kind of like, if you don't know what the future is, right? How can how can anybody pin you in a in a in a spot? It's just open to open to interpretation. It's open to your own your own way of creating it. So that is nice. The future becomes your canvas, basically. So I have a feeling that I know the way you're gonna answer this next question, but I'll ask it anyways. Knowing what you know right now. Uh, <laughs> what? I said the answer is 11. Okay, 11 or C, the answer is C. Exactly, okay, ask the question. Knowing what you know right now, what would you wish you would have told your younger self to prevent making the mistakes that you made earlier on? think anything. I mean, the mistakes are part of learning. And if you're not making mistakes, you're not learning. Um, as you know, Edison commented, I think on the invention of the light bulb, you know, well, we've done 1600 or whatever the number of things, 1900 until we got one that worked. And the answer is, well, I now was learning all along, I knew 1899 things that don't work. So that's good. You can put those behind you and move on. Part of the problem is often people give up. They give up easily. And whether that's um, 
you know, in your profession, developing a trick or whether it's developing economic theory or developing a new rocket engine. Uh, failure is a necessary part of success. And so the idea of regretting failures, now you can say, gee, I wish I didn't spend as much time as I did until I got to where I am. Well, you know, that's fair enough. Um, if you hurt yourself, it's nice not to have done that in the process of doing it. But, you know, the reality is, again, you know, without failures, you don't have the accumulated experience. You need to actually do something new and significant. Now, if you don't care about doing new things, well, then you don't have to fail. If you're going to lead a life based on risk adversity, so make sure you do nothing that, that fails. Odds are you're going to have a pretty boring life, or at least you're going to be leading a whole bunch of other people's lives rather than your own from the perspective of innovation. Mm. All right. All good. All good there. What about, let's switch gears because you're always about the next thing, the next greatest thing. I'm sure you have something new and interesting that uh, you've recently made. If, if there's anything that you're able to talk about that's, that's out there that you recently made or came up with, we'd love to hear about it. Well, um, a favorite project I was working on today is working on designing a new building. Um, it's uh, for a university and it's about innovation and design and how do you inspire the next generation of researchers to be able to take on a bunch of problems and challenges. So how would you create an environment? How would you put together the right kind of campus? What are places that allow people to interact in a positive way and in a way that's productive? And so that's been a lot of fun. So on one level, it's helping to invent, the technical term would be a new business model or a new operations model for how a postgraduate university can work. But on the other hand, it's really just thinking about how are we as a species evolving? How are our interests changing? And what kind of environment would you want to create that's conducive to people doing the most creative and innovative work? And for the same reason, you see a lot of focus at companies like Apple and Google in creating creative work environments because their sense is that goes to their bottom line. If they want people doing creative, exciting new things, you want to keep them stimulated and engaged. And so, you know, how do you take what's been learned in those fields? How do you take, I mean, look at architecture. How long have we decided to crawl in from under a rock or a cave and build buildings? But how many great buildings have you ever seen? You've seen millions of buildings, but most of them are kind of, eh, you know, not too exciting. So why is it so hard to design a great building considering how long it is? Why is it so hard to design a great chair? I mean, people have been designing chairs for a long time and most like the one you're in now are probably pretty uncomfortable and don't do exactly what you'd like them to do. Why is this so hard? Um, you know, I, I, to me, when you look at things like emerging technology, um, yeah, these sorts of things, you know, technology is the stuff that just doesn't really work well yet, right? And then it's just like when people are building chairs, they tried it with one leg, you fall over a lot. You try it with two legs, you fall to one side. Try it with three legs, not bad. <laughs> Add four, well, sometimes good. Five, well, you know, it, you know, 12, do I really need all these legs? So at a certain point you decide, 
well, three or four legs is about the right number of legs for a chair. And how tall should it be? Do you want your feet dangling or do you want them not? And how do you support your back and how do you get air circulation? And so well, we've been thinking about chairs for a long time, but there aren't that many great chairs. And there aren't many chairs that feel good and look great. How many chairs are there that 50 or 100 years later sell for more than they did new because they've become design objects or objects of desire? Same thing with cars. When does a car just become a bashed up old car to when does it become a multi-million dollar collector's item? How we place value on things are also how that particular design inspired people, affected them emotionally. I mean, to many people, a car is not just a means of transportation. It's how their personality is reflected or shown to other people. So designing things, engineering things that are both functional and beautiful and serve a purpose and survive the test of time, turns out it's actually pretty hard to do, but it is possible to do. And that as a designer is what um, we hope to strive for. And that's what Applied Minds is all about. It's a dirty job that somebody has to do it. There you go. And, and it's got, it take, takes a team, talented people with you at the helm, rocking it out, inventing the future. It's, it's fascinating. What about, um, are there any maker techniques, meaning woodworking, electronics, silicone molds, metalwork, any of that nature that, that uh, you work in hands-on? Or are you more of the conceptual guy and then you delegate all that type of stuff to other people? I mean, we have full machine shops, millions of dollars of machinery, 3D printers, five-axis CNC, laser cutters, water jet cutters, welders, etc. So we have a whole variety of techniques that we know how to use effectively. And sometimes none of those work. So you have to learn or invent a new te technique to be able to do it. So um, I enjoy being hands-on at the same time as companies get bigger and as you evolve in your career, you tend to move more towards supervising or helping other people to do it rather than building that chair with your own two hands. Now you may wish to do it because you enjoy that process. There are some people who I would refer to as craftspeople who really like the idea of building the perfect violin and will spend a year and a half doing it or the perfect chair or the perfect magic wand. You know, they can all do that and they develop a reputation for it. You know, why is a Stradivarius, you know, violin worth what it is today? And what made it special? Is it unique sound? Well, apparently uh, people with an ear for that believe it's that. Is it how it feels? Is it how you respond emotionally to it? It's all of those things. There's one no thing that makes a great violin a great violin. But when they all come together, there are some people who refining it and making each one better than the last and better and better and better. And then once it's perfect, keep building more of the perfect thing. That's not my personality. To me, I like to come up with an idea for a new way to do something, use it to practice, see if it works. And then I'm perfectly happy to have other people execute it, refine it, and make it because they're better at that than I am. And so I gotcha. think the challenge is how do you figure out what you're good or great at? Now, sometimes having your hands on the clay or carving a piece of wood 
that's part of the creative process where you learn the perfect line or the curve and you have something in your head but the process of refining that and evolving that can be very hands-on very hard to verbally describe to someone how to do a three-dimensional contour and a curve sometimes you can do it referentially saying we'll make it look like you know the side of this water bottle or you can do it by saying no i want it more streamlined and you have a sense of what streamlining means with aerodynamic but um, often how you reduce that to practice is about you in the role of artist having to manipulate it with your own hands and then once you get it close enough so that it clicks in your head and other people's head well then they can often take it and evolve it and make it even better okay that yeah and i mean you have you have a number of people just working on specializing in different things that are that are work they have their own unique set of skills and and you just come you just uh, do you have a do you have a notebook filled with ideas or do you not even do that or is it just on the spot i start sketching and drawing and then i lose that notebook and i do some you know so i have all you know i'll write on the back of a handy wrapper if it's necessary so I mean, the issue is, yeah, how do you get it out of your head into a way that can be communicated with others? So I'm drawing and sketching all the time. But, you know, I have at the company much better artists than I am. So I will give them a sketch to give them an idea. Again, maybe give them references like, gee, I want there to be Magritte clouds. Well, if you know the artist Magritte, you know what a Magritte cloud is. And so you can move in the direction of that surrealistic painter from Belgium. Um, or you can say, you know, I want it's a Picasso line, or it's something that a person who has the same vocabulary you have, either because you work together closely, or because the assumption is that people who do similar things have a common way of speaking to each other that makes sense. So, you know, you're talking sleight of hand, you can refer to the greats like a Slidini and sort of say, well, it's, you know, he did it. And that in the head of someone who studies magic speaks to them. It says, okay, well, I understand that. Or if there's a magician you've seen who does something so much better than someone else does of the same thing, then that becomes kind of transformational where you say, well, you got to see how this guy or gal did that because it, it takes it to a different level that the simple description of that gesture or that move. I mean, when I was a, uh, a kid, I watched Slaini at a show and, um, you know, he was simply doing things that were impossible. There's no other way to describe it rather than that. And he was uh -huh. so good at understanding how things and where their attention is. And well, oh, yeah. If I do this, every single time an observer will do that, and that gives me the opportunity to do something else in a way that you wouldn't believe possible until you actually see it happen or see it happen to you. And so, you know, that can be a transformation when you watch that happen and you realize that now there's a whole set of possibilities that you hadn't considered before because of things like physics. And you'd say, well, it's simply impossible to do that, but you're not thinking multidimensionally enough so that you understand that, well, understanding weaknesses of human perception 
or artifacts of human perception or facts about human perception allows you with sufficient skill to do things in such a way and sufficient skill and sufficient practice because as you know in your field uh, practice really matters. Oh yeah. And, you know, I remember I was sitting once with Ricky Jay in an airport and a kid came up and said, Mr. Jay, can I have your autograph and, and so forth. And Ricky could be a little gruff about things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, how do I get to learn to, um, you know, be as good as you are with cards? And his answer was simple kid, practice eight hours a day for 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to it, right? Right. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, he wasn't actually exaggerating that what it takes to be as good as he is at that, assuming you have the talent and the willpower to be able to do that and follow through with it. Pretty much, pretty much. It's it's a big willpower game because a lot of people, a lot of people stop too soon just due to lack of willpower and and making the assumption that they're never going to get to that point because once they realize the 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 difficult truth the hard pill to swallow wow it's really just repeating it ten thousand times plus that's it yeah simple to describe incredibly difficult to actually put into practice and actually discipline yourself to do that that's why there's so you few yourself that you will be able to do it or else you just give up right i mean you're not going to spend hundreds of hours or thousands of hours practicing something if you don't actually believe you'll be able to do it. Well, right. that's the challenge of the pioneers, of the first people to develop a new trick or something, is that they had the self-belief. Um, and sometimes it's obsessional, right? It's not mm -hmm. rational um, to actually get to the point. And then once it all of a sudden clicks, it's, it's, you know, it's a little like, and this seems like a strange analogy, but learning to fly a helicopter very hard to fly a helicopter. There's nothing intuitive about flying a helicopter. And by the way, there's nothing about if you know how to fly a normal fixed wing plane that helps you in flying a helicopter. <laughs> okay. It's often easier to learn it when you haven't done that because you don't have a whole bunch of things to forget. And, you know, hovering, your question is how hard can it be to hover? Well, my answer to you is extremely hard to hover. And if you don't believe it, go take a, you know, trial three-hour flight school thing and see what you think but then all of a sudden you're just doing it and you rewired your muscle memory and your kinesthetic sense of balance and a whole bunch of other things which they uh -huh. teach about flight school which sounds like a whole bunch of nonsense when you <laughs> hear it but it turns out it's true and then at a certain point all of a sudden you're just doing it and it's not conscious and the things that they tell you, like, don't look down at the ground, don't, you know, a whole bunch of things that, well, why the hell aren't I looking down at, you know, <laughs> isn't that what I'm, I'm trying to do? Well, it turns out uh, that accumulated experience is true. And then once you learn to do it, um, instead of sweat is pouring down you and you're tense and you're nervous, all of a sudden it just calms down to something that you do re literally reflexively. And so, mm -hmm. you know, getting over those humps of learning thresholds requires patience, requires dedication, and um, requires practice. Yeah, and I, I think one of the one of the most important things that you said that the, both my listeners and viewers should remember if they don't get anything else is the importance of self-belief because somebody can 
somebody can set aside, let's say they do set aside eight hours and they do it for a while. If they don't go back to the, the core of having the self-belief that they're going to get from point A to point B, that's going to peter out, that, that desire. Uh, but that self-belief, just the belief, the, the belief is fueling the passion, which then goes into the practice and the, the action of whatever you're trying to take to get that result. And it's, it's actually really difficult to, like you said, to believe in yourself or to believe that you could do X, Y, and Z when you're charting uncharted territory. It's, that's tough because you have no map to go by. It's just looking out there in the, in the deep ocean and saying, what about this? Let's go there. But I have no clue how to get there, but I'm going to get there, right? Well, and especially if there's a difference between if you want to do something okay, do it well, or be the very best in the world at it. They right. are different in what you have to learn to be able to do that. And if you decide there's a certain thing, you believe you have the potential to be the best in the world at, because unless you believe that, you're not going to be, right? If you can't believe in so. Um, but then getting to be okay, to good, to very good, to excellent, to be the best, each one is another level that you really have to work at. And then, you know, just as a professional athlete, you get to find out, well, are you the number one or the number two or the number 7,438? Mm -hmm. what, uh, what about any, are there any, since... We, we did talk about some maker techniques and different facets of, of building and making these creative inventions. Are there any techniques like a new CNC technology or, or something along those lines that you're excited about learning this year? Is there anything that you've got your sights set on? Well, um, there are areas that are rapidly evolving such as additive manufacturing, 3D printing, which about, yes, yeah, so I was noticing that in the background, um, but that are constantly evolving so that there are simple, affordable systems that would have been unthinkable 10 years ago that you can buy now for you know a few hundred or a few thousand or modest dollars. On the other end, there are ones that you can buy for a few million dollars that actually do um, much more interesting things that higher precision, you know, uh, direct metal printing where you're printing in titanium or yes, or a collection of things like that. Very interesting potential. Love it. Very interested in hybrid new machines, which combine 3D additive printing with CNC machining into a single machine. Nice. Now, at the moment, millions of dollars. They won't be forever but they combine the ability to generate the precision final part that you can do with only CNC manufacturing where you need to be accurate to a few tenths of a thousandth of an inch mm -hmm. and combine that with things that um, use materials that traditionally would be difficult or impossible to make in certain shapes. And so, you know, for me, it's really just paying attention when you have these emerging ideas or emerging software that can control CNC machines and enable you to do things that you, you can't do otherwise. So for me, um, it's uh, Nirvana is ultimately able to capture a 3D image of anything 
manipulate it any way you wish or create from scratch and then have the ability to bring that to life in whatever material you wish. And that could yes. be glass or it could be aluminum or it could be plutonium, um, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that, or you know, uh, all of these various possibilities. And then of course, the next boundary is how do you create new materials that don't exist, which have unique properties, which are valuable to you. And mm -hmm. so um, whether that's transparent aluminum or whether that's a combination of materials that have a set of properties that would be particularly interesting to you because they can be structural, yet they have an optical set of properties or a look or a feel or a touch to them that's different. I think that's for me, the next threshold is sort of seeing how these things get combined and how when you learn about a certain additive printing technique, it gets you interested in a different type of material. I remember in our metal fabricating shop, when we first started the company 20 years ago, the question is, do we in the welding shop invest in a water jet cutter? And at the time, a serious, you know, five by 10 foot water jet cutter, like the one we bought was, you know, more than a quarter of a million dollars. And when you're starting a little company, right. it's not for the faint of heart, right? You know, right. buying something like yeah. this and saying, well, are we going to use it enough? Is it going to be that? But from a, um, a non-obvious perspective, it totally changed the way we thought about fabricating things in the welding shop. And so that tool, you know, company's 20 years old, I don't think there's been a day that it hasn't been in use in the shop. <laughs> and it's still kicking 20 years later, good solid machine. And so that wouldn't have been obvious at the time we made the decision. It turns out it was an excellent decision and it's paid for itself many times over, but it takes some bravery and a leap of faith to spend that much money when you're a little startup company uh, to do something where, you know, you'd say, well, rationally do you absolutely have to have this? the answer yeah. is well no you don't right at that time at that time right you just you, you don't understand the the potential until 20 years later after you go hey this this thing's pretty useful and due to the due to the upfront cost i mean uh, to quarter of a million dollars yeah that's that's pretty prohibitive as well i mean most it's it's very easy to make everything cost prohibitive when you're a startup because I mean it's kind of difficult not to think about money, but uh, it is nice to have that visionary mindset to go well wait a minute this magical machine here, let's just think about this for a second this could be a really good investment, and sure enough it was, so well, that's by the way it was the same money that we spent on our first 3D printer. You know, 3D printers were not before $400 units or $1,500 units. They were $150,000, $250,000, $350,000 units. And again, you know, are we going to get enough use out of it? Did you guess right of the 20 options in 3D printers? Did you guess right on which technology to bet on? And those were not clear. A whole bunch of them that seemed clever and interesting went poof no interest in it, companies went out of business. Well, you know, you buy an expensive thing and that expensive thing um, you're gonna pay for over five years or 10 years. 
and it goes obsolete after 18 months and you can't get supplies for it. Mm. The company doesn't exist to maintain it. So you end up maintaining it yourself. You know, these are part of the joys of being in business and an entrepreneur. As they say, you pay your money and you take your chances. Yeah, there are a lot of risks to be taken as an entrepreneur or just a visionary in general. You're, you're, almost every idea is a risk because, if, especially if it's never been done before, you're, you're, you're going to risk something. And the risk reward, I guess, once you have enough experience, I mean, no risk is ever a perfect risk to take, but you kind of develop a gauge of the risk to reward factor based you know, you kind of get like a little spider sense, which I'm sure you've developed over the years. You kind of see where things are going and have a good feeling about whatever tech or, yeah. What about, what about, do you have something, I'll ask you about the past. I know you don't like to focus on it, but I mean, you have designed many things over the years. Is there something that you've made or designed that's your favorite uh, of the past? Like something, I don't know, from, from a while back, you just say, this was like a landmark thing for me. Well, I think a lot of the projects I've worked on were fun. I did Broadway shows like Frankenstein that was a very short-lived um, life, but it was a lot of fun to do and it brought a level of spectacle to Broadway that people hadn't seen before. On Broadway again, Sunday in the Park with George was a great show to collaborate on and work on. Cats was a great show to work on and uh, bring to life. You know, when I was at Disney doing things like the Test Track attraction, Tower uh, <laughs> of Terror, you know, systems like that, uh, you know, it's satisfying when it all comes together and works. But again, for me, um, you know, asking about your favorite is a little like asking a musician, what's your favorite note? Um, you sure. Know, C sharp, or, you know, the will yeah. answer. Well, Kind of depends. I need all the notes in order to do it, just like an right. artist's favorite color. Well, you probably need, you know, a lot of colors. Ask a musician, <laughs> what's your favorite hand? You know, and, right. you know, so the, the reality is that if you're going to lead a creative life, all of these are part of your toolkit, as is your yes. best. And hopefully you learn a set of useful things on every project you do. Yes, and that's that's another important thing. Every everything that you do, uh, whether it appears to you to be super significant or insignificant and silly, you find out years later, right? How everything kind of builds on itself. One thing leads to the to the next. If you're uh, if you're smart about it and you keep an open mind, you're absolutely right. You learn a little bit from this project, a little bit from that project, and oh, a little here. And then when you get to the really big project down the road, you can take all those little bits and pieces from the other ones, and you just keep building on those. And yeah, so I guess what, yeah, what you're saying is it's pretty difficult to decide on a favorite because each one, for you, of course, is, it's custom. It requires probably, you have some similarities and skill sets, but then you have some where you're, where you're exploring new ones. And well, and again, I, I think that we always sort of want, well, what's the best, what's the oldest, what's the fastest, the most expensive? We, you know, it, if you applied that to something like food, what's the best food you've ever had? It's all it's subjective. Right? Because they're that. And, you know, what's the ever, best play you ever saw? What's the best movie you ever saw? What's the subjective. best performance you ever saw? So, um, and, and I feel the same way about projects. Each of them 
are a technical as well as an emotional as well as an experience. I mean, got it. Something fairly ordinary. If you were collaborating with people you really enjoyed working with, um, can end up being much more satisfying than doing something that's technically or creatively more challenged. But you had a miserable time because you were working with jerks. Yeah, yeah. The people that you work with that plays a big part. It's just like in school. Uh, go, go. You go to school and there's a subject that you find boring but you switch teachers and then because you have a better teacher makes it a whole other experience absolutely yeah okay so i should i should have known you were going to answer it that way there's no real it's hard to pick favorites basically uh what about oh what about the uh, the kira van what's your is that that's, that's a fairly recent for you right uh, it's an ongoing research project. It's building a vehicle to drive around the world with my family and daughter. Um, and, uh, you know, it's how do you design and engineer the best expedition vehicle? So on one level, it's an interesting technical problem for the company to develop technologies that we then employ and use. We work in the transportation sector extensively. So it's a research project to do that. At the same time, it's for me an interesting creative and intellectual exercise to say, well, what can we learn about doing vehicles better or navigation better in a way that positively impacts people's lives? And exploration has always been very interesting to me, going out into the wilderness or standing on a rock that perhaps nobody has ever stood on and you know, admiring this exceptional world. And so from my perspective, Building the systems that are capable of navigating those places is fun, but what's just as fun is the experience of then using that as a tool to do something else. So that's a long-winded answer to on one level, um, it's a research project for our company that allows us to learn how to do things better in driver interfaces and displays and suspension systems and stuff that we do for our customers. At the same time, it's something that personally allows me to learn more about these things and allow uh, my family and I to go experience things that in the way of being the guinea pigs to test out these new technologies. Okay, okay. And I, I remember in the video that I watched, it was, uh, it was, a, it was on YouTube. It, it had quite a few views. It was, in the, it was over a million views. And at the time the video was taken, uh, it was under five years of, of research and development. So is, is it still still continuously just... Continuously evolving. Continuously. So it'll, it's like it'll never be done done, right? It's just this... Entirely correct. <laughs> okay. Okay. And just for, for, I mean, the viewers will understand this because I'm, I've, I've been showing some slides and, and clips that I've spliced in, but for the listeners, can you just uh, briefly describe what this thing is? Well, um, it's a, think of it as a camper. It's large, um, <laughs> it weighs 51,000 pounds. The tires are four feet in diameter, so it's Whoa. not, small. it has eight tires on it, all which are Whoa. driven. And um, it's designed to go to rough, difficult places to get to and support scientific research or support photography or cinematography or simply living and existing in those environments. Wow, so it's like an RV on steroids. 
the good news is if you Google Kiravan, um, there's a lot on it and kiravan.net is its little web page that we put together to give people some information on it. Okay, okay, Kiravan, that's K-I-R-A-V-A-N, Kiravan, correct? And, and Kira, coincidentally, is the name of your daughter, correct? Yes, what a surprise between the two. And it's, by the way, .net. Uh, so uh, from, you know, from my perspective, those, and it's, uh, Kira comes in on the weekends to help me work on it and look at it and help make design choices. But, you know, the, the, to me, building tools and think of the Kiravan as a tool and how to build better tools is an important way to build the future. It doesn't really matter what it is, just like the 3D printer behind you. The person who invented and developed that had no idea of what you, Sean, are going to do with it. Right. Enabled, uh, and I would imagine it's enabled your creative process in a way that it lets you try and experiment with ideas. Oh, yeah. That you may or may not use 3D printing for the final execution of, but allows you to say, oh, this is a good idea, or I think this isn't going to work. Maybe we should try something else. Yes, hence the term rapid prototyping, hopefully getting from point A to point B a little faster, right? Just a little bit. Although, although the uh, FDM technology isn't really that fast like they claim it to be, you know, because it's layer by layer. I mean, I guess. Well, and the fact is, is it fast compared to carving it with your teeth out of granite, probably. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, it all depends what you're comparing it to. I mean, the, again, and, the concept, the framework here, you're always, you never work with a framework. I love it. It's like, well, just how you look at it here. What about this angle? Oh, and also, unlike a lot of other ways of fabricating, you can go away for two days while it does it and come back. That's a big deal. See what you got wrong, you know, in your programming. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, they're arrows in the quiver that uh, give you a new set of tools and possibilities that let you explore your creative ideas. Right on. What about when you were designing something from the beginning, from the very ground up? I mean, I guess everything is obviously from the ground up, but uh, when you were designing whatever one of these things are, would you, is there a moment that you would consider your biggest DIY construction uh, fail of all time, just like some catastrophic event that happened while you were creating something? Fail all the time. As I say, that's really part of it. I don't think that one comes to mind. It can be frustrating when you work on a big show and it closes opening night for reasons that, you know, you and your role have no control over. And life in the big city, you know, you just accept that. And you can dwell on these things as being big tragedies, or you can just put it aside and get on to the next one. And that was found is more effective. And especially if you're going to work in creative areas, if you don't have things failing regularly, you're just simply not trying hard enough and not doing things that are ambitious enough. So true, so true, right? You're being too safe if, if you have very few or no failures. It's just playing it too safe. Yeah, and you know, you can do that, but the odds are you're not gonna live up to the potential that you have if you allow yourself to be stretched for. That's true, yeah, because you'll never know. You'll never know what you're capable of until you start stretching it, basically, stretching the limits. 
of, of time, of space, and that's what that's what magicians do. That's what wizards do. And I mean, you're you're a wizard in your your own. I mean, you're a wizard of of life. You're like the real life wizard of Oz, almost. You know, behind all the ge gears and cogs. Here's my curtain. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's right just out of frame, behind the many phases of the moon, which is a really cool picture behind you. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, is is just it's the inner workings and it makes it makes the future and you're okay if one of the gears comes loose because maybe maybe you don't even need the gear maybe you can design a better one well, and also you know you might have been satisfied with something and at a certain point you realize it was actually a pretty crappy idea and it's <laughs> move on it's just time let's move on yep i agree what about uh is there anything that you've ever created by accident and it turned out to be amazing? Well, I think that's part of the creative process. So, you know, you can give it a formal name like serendipitous discovery. But often, if you're heading in one direction, it's the accidents along the way, whether you're doing a painting and a splotch of color or, you know, a drip or something breaks. And you say, well, I didn't really need that whole part of it anyway. So. I think that's integral to the creative process. And I know, I don't really think I know any artists who have one precise picture in their head and then just execute that rather than learn as they go. I'm sure there must be some who pre-visualize it and then it's all about getting to that. But most of the people um, from my perspective learn as they go and it's the mistakes that are the equivalent of mutations and evolution. So, you know, why do species keep changing? Well, there's a mutation, the mutation does something and either it turns out to suck so that the creature doesn't function as well with that mutation or it gives them a competitive environmental advantage that they didn't have otherwise. So, you know, all of a sudden there's a third arm and it turns out that third arm or that eighth leg was pretty handy in getting around. And so they get together with other ones with that mutation and you end up with the species heading off in a new direction. So from my perspective, that evolutionary process applies just the same to design. And what you call a mistake is actually a mutation in such a way that, well, is it a bad disadvantage is mutation? In which case you probably won't do it again or repeat it. Or, gee, that was kind of interesting at work, or I discovered something, or, again, you're you know, trying to roll a coin between your fingers and it drops, but you recover it in a way that, you know, you'd never done before. You say, oh, well, that's kind of, in now can I make it do that? And does that become something to add to the repertoire? Yeah, yeah, it, that, yes, just yes. <laughs> for, the, for those, for the viewers of this program and listeners who don't know, uh, brand's background, I'm just going to throw out a few impressive things that I noticed. I mean, being, being the, um, you were the, just make, I want to make sure I get this right, the, the president of Imagineering at Disney, was that? At Walt Disney Imagineering, um, I was president in charge of research and development at what's called creative technology there. Okay. Um, uh, our version of how you combine art and science together. And Imagineering, when I was there, was a very large group, was 4,000 people or thereabouts, which 
design and build all the Disney theme parks, as well as provide a master planning and creative resource to all the other divisions in the company that might use it. So it was at the time, one of the larger design companies in the world with the shortest client list, basically one client, which <laughs> Um, parts of the Walt Disney Company. So my job was that and to think about the future. Now we call these things futurists and such, but then we didn't have particularly fancy names for it, but uh, to uh, invent the future of entertainment and the kinds of experiences that people wish to bring their families to to create lifelong memories, positive memories, ideally. Right, right. That, that I mean, that's 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 fascinating, and and it's it's funny the way <laughs> the way you say it, it's kind of like yeah, nothing to it. Yeah, yeah, it's something I did. Yeah, no big, no big deal. Job, somebody has to. <laughs> nothing to it. No big deal. I mean, it's it's kind it's kind of a big deal. I think I think the millions of children and parents in America uh, benefit from from your work and the rest of the creative team. I mean, it it wouldn't be really an exciting theme park or set of parks if it was just. You know, buildings that look like every other building, or, or things that did things that people can experience just in their home. They go to Disney World to, to experience things that are magical and, and impossible or whimsical. Well, you know, it's very popular to talk these days about virtual reality and building virtual worlds and that sort of thing. Well, you know, those are virtual worlds. They're just bought, built out of concrete, steel, and wood rather than bits. So it's the same problem. We're just building much higher resolution virtual worlds that you can live in and experience without needing goggles. That's really interesting. I mean, I never thought about it that way. So, so I guess it depends how you define virtual worlds. See, the way I would define virtual is is through electronics and electronic medium. But you're you're stating otherwise. Well, I mean, again, why? How do you know something is electronic? These days, the only way you know it's electronic is it's kind of crappy as compared to <laughs> the world, right? So, yeah. yeah. Um, it's just like, uh, you know, uh, advanced technology being indistinguishable from magic. It's exactly the same thing. It's basically saying, well, we're building worlds. Are the worlds real? Well, you can experience them. They can live in them. But was that a real princess castle? I'll let you be the judge, you know, is that, is that really a mountain that's going to take you on a ride through space? Well, it's certainly going to give you the experience of that. It uses hmm. photonics, it uses photons, it uses other things, but what's the difference? I mean, one is built in software riding in a visualization system. The other is built in software running a ride control system. What they're all doing is presenting a synthetic, designed story to you to experience. And so my view is whether that's in a headset or in the real world, real world is higher resolution. You feel changes in temperature, you feel acceleration, you feel a whole bunch of experiences you don't in a virtual world. There's some overlaps, both can make you dizzy or think you're falling over. Or doing yes. But you know, VR technology is just at the moment an immature alternative way of building virtual worlds. <laughs> an Im immature technology way of building an alternate world. Interesting. Wow, I never thought about it that way. Well, I mean, when an audience <laughs> watching a magician and captivated by it, 
they swear they see things that didn't actually happen the way they think they saw them. So right. you actually didn't get cut in half and you actually, you know, a whole bunch of things sure. that they clearly saw happen didn't happen because you're constructing a virtual experience for them. Now, if they're viewing that through goggles, I would argue it's much less compelling because having you there, it's just like you take the most basic special effect in the world, like having, you know, a scene with a person that just fades out, right? Mm -hmm. Now, when you first saw this at the dawn of movie making, this was magical and astonishing. How did this person just fade away? Because there wasn't general knowledge of how that film uh, visual effect happened. And it was mm -hmm. at a time before there was even the phrase visual effects. So that was magical. Uh, when people went to see the first Cinerama film, this is Cinerama, and the train is roaring at them from the screen, they ducked because they thought they were going to get hit and run over. Yeah. It was not an intellectual reaction. It was an emotional reaction to it. Well, that emotional reaction now of watching a person in a film or on television be cut in half, they is, well, what's the big deal, right? I mean, you know, we know we didn't cut the magician in half every time we do the thing or the assistant. <laughs> so it must be a trick. But if you saw someone get cut in half in the street doing exactly the same, you know, effect, it's just like you look at staple things that have been done by magicians for a long time when a magician like David Blaine yes. created street magic. Correct. Took things that had been well established on stage and did it in front of people for real. Right. It reset the magic, right? It was something that became amazing to people because this wasn't on a stage and you assume there can be contrivances and big machines backstage and everything else. It happened before their eyes right in front of them. And that was just like the experience I had with Slidini, where it's, you know, kid, you have a quarter? Yes, I have a quarter. Okay, so hold it between your two fingers and don't let me, you know, touch it. And put your hand down on the table. And this was a stone table that he couldn't have prepared. You know, it was backstage. And then he holds my finger with his hand, pushes on the top of the quarter I'm holding, and just pushes it through the table. And I don't know how to describe it any other way. That's exactly what happened. Fantastic. The moment it happened. Well, it's obviously not what happened. Of course. It sure was what happened with <laughs> all of my senses. And so I think it's important when you're in storytelling business, a magic business or other things, to realize that something as simple as dissolving, which is now not even considered an effect, you know, the Star Trek twinkle as they transport it all, which when you saw it as a kid, oh, that's, that's pretty neat. And now you realize it's them going like this and then, you know, step off the set and we'll put the things together with a little animation about it. But again, if you met me and I did that in front of you as we were shaking hands, I yeah. it would have a whole different experience for you than it would otherwise. Absolutely. So I think the notion of the stage, the context, how it's presented, which is why you have to open up your aperture on what virtual reality is or what magic is or what illusion is or any of these other things, because simply changing venue or context can take something that would be 
ordinary and uninteresting and turn it into magical. That is all really great points made. I mean, taking taking the effect or the whatever you're showcasing and just changing the background. And and your your point is that what most people know as virtual reality, people looking at something on a screen is and in your mind you feel it's less effective because of just the the truism people know. I am looking at a screen whereas when you design something for Disney World it's a it's a physical place that they are right there in. It's the real world but you've designed this manifestation, this virtual space to, to emulate, to create the illusion of something else that they're experiencing right there live. Which, well, uh, yeah, and the, we become jaded with the modern world because even if we don't understand something and how it was done, we assume that if you're watching a $200 million movie that somewhere in there they can figure out how to make a loaf of bread turn into a lizard, right? So yeah. even if you don't have an idea of how to do that, when you see it happen, the idea is, eh, well, what do you expect? It's, you know, <laughs> couldn't it have been a bigger lizard or couldn't you have started with pumpernickel? You know, these are all aesthetic choices. But again, if you watch a loaf of pumpernickel in front of you turn into a lizard, I guarantee you, even if it's a little baby lizard, it's going to be one <laughs> hell of a, a great illusion. And so I, I think that's what people get wrong is they don't understand context and they don't understand that this is all about getting people not to think intellectually, but think emotionally. And that's what great entertainers and storytellers do. They don't allow you the ability to engage intellectually. In fact, it's bewildering intellectually. So you're acting purely in an emotional realm. Hmm. And, and with that being said, I've been inspired to create the latest effect. It's called the loaf to lizard. I'll exactly. start making it on my 3D printer now. L2L. Loaf... <laughs> LTL, loaf to lizard. That's a big, that's going to be a big seller with Murphy's, I think. I don't know. That's a weird one, but it could happen. It could happen, but, but you got to think that way. But yeah, I mean, really, in all seriousness, your point is, your point is made. Ch just that the way in these, the way that they're experienced changes everything. Um, and it's interesting that you brought up VR because when I was looking at your background, you, you did, you did a lot of work with, with what people would know as VR headsets, right? You, can yeah. you... Look, it's been an area that's interested me for a long time. We work with clients on it now. You know, it's just primitive technology. And just like the example earlier of a chair, you know, the reality is we don't call a chair technology. We call it a chair. We only call it technology when it kind of sucks. So, you know, um, we've got technology with VR now, just as like we've had technology in 3D movies where every 10 years someone rediscovers and reinvents since the 50s 3D movies as if they're the solution to entertainment. And someone does one on a great film like Avatar or something, mm -hmm. make a lot of money, everyone's excited. Then they do 10 lousy movies in a room and realize that the 3D isn't helping and they're just spending a lot of money and it's kind of a pain in the rear end to work with it. So it dies for another few years. So you know, we get too focused on technology rather than the overall experience, 
when technologies aren't great, 3D isn't great. Why? Because you have to wear goggles and glasses. And most people hate wearing glasses, especially those who don't wear glasses. And it makes the view of the world dark. And it's just kind of weird and a bunch of other things. Now, as soon as you can do 3D, where the cost is similar in production, so it's not a big negative to people to shoot in it, and you just look at the screen and you see it in 3D without requiring glasses or so, that will change. When virtual reality is you swallow a pill like an aspirin and it rewires your brain and all of a sudden you're seeing playback in 3D and you're hearing all the sounds and all, you don't need movie theaters anymore. Right? <laughs> what you're, descri what you're right. describing sounds like an acid trip actually. You swallow a pill and right. you see stuff. You rewire your brain, do the whole thing and it remains in the fact that you don't uh, pay your bill, in which case it will be excreted and you have to, you know, take a new one. So <laughs> the idea of implants and um, biomimetics and machines that do that are all in the future. And the question is just when is it ready for prime time and how do you do it? So for certain applications such as gaming, VR can be quite compelling and, and interesting, but as a substitute for theater or film or theme parks or a whole bunch of other things, it's it's nowhere near real yet. I think it is a novelty. There are certain areas in entertainment where novelties are useful in which they're helpful. But again, if you watch a great magician make the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty or the Grand Canyon disappear before your eyes, that's a very different experience. And whether it's uh, David Copperfield extravaganza. And um, that audience is blown away because they've seen upfront and personal something that can't be there. And why do you need that audience there? Because unless you saw the reaction of that audience, you at home thinks it's no big deal, right? So you just turn the lights off on you know, the thing and the thing disappears. So having the audience there who were the first person witnesses to the magical event is what brings it home for the millions of people at the audience watching it. So it's all about shared emotional experiences and reactions and how you get people to do that. Now, if you can really make the Empire State Building disappear or really make the Statue of Liberty disappear, um, well, that's an entirely different proposition. If you could make it disappear in a VR goggle, big deal, because <laughs> VR goggle isn't real anyway, and you assume it isn't real, so you're no more impressed than if you saw in an animation a building disappear. Great, they just stop drawing the building and the building disappears. Or, or watching it in a, in a movie, just going to a movie theater and the building disappears, where you go, oh, that was great visual effects, right on. And if you watch it and it looks like a visual effect, it's different than if they imploded a building and you looked at it, it looks real like they really imploded the building and someone was hanging from a flagpole on the building and so on. You know, an action adventure movie that clearly, whether it's real or appears to be real to the audience at home. And there are a whole bunch of techniques that are not obvious to audiences like wire removal and such like that, which takes something, looks pretty mundane if the person is hanging there, um, you know, on a set of cables, sure. hanging there and there are no cables, it's a lot more threatening and interesting looking. So again, 
it's if you want people to suspend their disbelief, you have to work in a medium and establish a context which they accept as being real. And it can be little or tiny or big or small, but understanding that aspect of storytelling and the veracity of an experience and how it appears to people and what they are willing to buy into versus not, oh. that determines whether something's a yawn or a wow. You know, when, when you're talking about viewing something that's real, I, I have vivid memories. I'm not sure if this was Disney or Universal, but when I was little, I went to see some kind of Indiana Jones, must have been Universal, I think it was, a recreation of a, of a scene from the movie. And the, what made it so compelling to watch is just because you saw explosion, real explosions happening right there. You could feel the heat from the fire. You could see people, real people getting launched through the air. There was no... There was no special animation. It was really happening, and they were able to create that illusion. And yeah, my, my belief was suspended. My disbelief was suspended. But, yes, and it was Disney, by the way. No, okay, no, sorry. No. I'll, I'll exactly. edit it. When I saw Disney's but, Indiana Jones. Well, and the idea of Disney's Indiana Jones is it's a stunt show. And so the idea is to show you how stunt people, if they were shooting a movie, would actually be doing it. And it takes on a whole different meaning than if you saw it in the movie, right? Because you see these people physically doing demanding things, you realize there is danger and yeah. they are at risk. And if the timing were wrong on when an explosion goes off or do they get out of the way of the you know, galloping horses and the other stuff like that, so the fact that there is danger and risk involved, just as a magician, if there is real danger and risk involved, where whether they're chained up and blindfolded underwater in a tank, well, we all know that's a tank, that's water. We watch the person get in it. If there is risk associated with that. It sure. could go wrong. It has gone wrong in the past, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. All of that adds to the feeling that you're experiencing something special. Now, it could be you're experiencing something dumb, right? So you're saying, well, why would someone put themselves at risk to do that particular stunt or trick or endurance test or something? Well, because that's part of their shtick and that's what they do. And you can either like that or not like that, your choice, and you get to vote with whether you watch it or pay for your ticket or do with anything else. Sure. But this, there is a contract between the audience and a performer. And that contract involves belief versus disbelief, illusion versus reality, true risk versus perceived risk, et cetera. And pushing those edges are a way that one performer differentiates themselves from other performers. And mm. either they differentiate themselves because people just think they're an idiot, <laughs> or they differentiate themselves because people think they're brave or they've accomplished something remarkable and how they present that and think through that and the emotional consequences of their actions on the audiences has a lot to do with it you know are they delighting the audience or making the audience feel cheated and deceived um same trick can be perceived either way, depending upon who's executing it, how they're executing it, and so forth. Correct. And in one case, it's you never want to see that creep again. Or in the next 
okay, so that was really great. What's the next thing? Correct, correct. Uh, had, did you by any chance see David Blaine's live show when he was on tour? Yes. Okay, so nothing more to say. I mean, because when you were talking about doing things that people weren't sure whether it was real or not because it was so borderline. I mean, a lot of a lot of the stunts, I mean, he's kind of like the modern-day Houdini. But when you said something that people are seeing right in front of them that has genuine risk, just, you know, taking the needle and putting it through his hand. Most people are kind of 50-50. They're like, well, maybe there's a way to do that as a trick. But when he's right there in your face, you, I mean, he's literally doing, he's just doing it. I'm right. going to stick the needle in my hand, and he really does stick it in his hand and just kind of gets it in the right spot so he's not tapping a nerve. Well, and that's... The is that, you know, David, and by full disclosure, he's been a friend of mine for a long time. Awesome. But, you know, he's a very gifted performer. Absolutely. has created a very unique persona, which really has captured people's imagination. Now, some people say, get back to the street magic. Some people say, no, I want you're frozen in a bigger ice block or electrocuted on the top of the thing. So there are different audiences for these things. And sure. the fact that he keeps changing it up and can you top this and can you do this? You know, as his friend, I often worry for him and say, David, I think this is dangerous and I think, you know, you should do this. But putting him his himself at risk and having the discipline and doing the physical training to accomplish a lot of what he does, which you or I would not do. You know, I don't know about you, I can't hold my breath as long as he can hold his breath. And, and you know, he trained for that for years and learned mm -hmm. to be able to do it. And the fact that he is blurring the line between what's physical endurance, what's illusion, you know, what's reality. I mean, that's what makes him interesting to so many people. But again, can be disturbing to people. And the fact is that's part of it, right? Right, you can't that, please everybody. Exactly, and nor should you, right? As an artist, it's, you know, you're doing what feels true to you. And if people react well to it, right, or less well to it, well, you get to decide where you wanna take it. But, you know, David is one of those people who's a true original and whether it's embracing classic things and seeing how well they can be done, or if it's inventing new things. I mean, that's why people go to see, because they find it fascinating just to experience and experience his growth and progression as an artist. He's, he's a real life, he's a real life oddity, or to, to compared to a normal world, he's an oddity. But again, I know you would say, well, it just depends on you know, your frame of reference, which is totally right. He's, he's, he's an artist just expressing himself and he has his own unique way of doing that. Very unique and interesting well, way. Our reality is normal is pretty boring most of the time. That's, that is also true. It's like, that, I mean, that's why people, I always, I always tell other people like to try to, because I try to get inside the heads of people who have, um, what would be considered a standard nine to five job, just because I'm curious, because I've never been that way myself. But uh, I believe people just enjoy watching TV or they're, they're, they love TV so much after work or they love going to see a movie at night after work because they need that fantasy to escape because they're desperately crying out to escape from, from the boring reality that they're living in. And they, 
they need an escape. They need a release. Well, and on one level, everybody does, right? Yeah, so, in their own way. Yeah. Your, yeah, and how we choose, is it you go to a movie to escape or you go out to dinner to escape or you go fishing out on a boat to escape or you go watch an entertainer or a professional wrestler or, you know, whatever yeah. you want to do something. And so we, we each find it. But I think that it's always, as with any artist, if it's a fine artist, if it's a painter, watching their evolution and progression of where they go. To most people, it's disturbing when they take on a new direction if you love the old direction, right? You say, well, gee, I really like the old stuff he or she did or so forth. And well, and the answer is, well, that's nice, but to, it's like a shark. You got to keep swimming, right? <laughs> you know, and um, in, an artist, generally speaking, needs to keep evolving and evolving their art and they, you get to experience it as they're learning about it and experiencing it as well. So that's that journey is part of the progression that, that we follow creative people through throughout their careers. Yeah, to to be a shark, that's that's a tough life. You know, sharks, they is, is it true? They sleep with their eyes open, right? Be a performer's a tough life. <laughs> you got that right. Have you, have you noticed? I've totally noticed 100 2000 percent. It is not for the faint of heart. Uh, it it really does require true passion and a true love because if it's just a little fleeting side thing, yeah, it's really easy to get discouraged. Absolutely. So yeah, maybe maybe performing is a lot like being a shark, right? You have to keep swimming. If you don't keep moving, sharks just sink, right? They just like sink to the bottom. And then, yeah, sleeping with yeah, your eyes open. Putting yourself out in front of an audience, in many ways, setting yourself up for failure every time you do, because things go wrong. And sometimes they're in your control, sometimes they're not. Yes. But it's that it which makes it interesting. There are some people that are cut out to do it. There are some people that can't. And right. you know, as you're evolving a life and a career, it's nice to be able to eat. And so doing it well enough so that people will pay you to do it so that you can keep doing it. But as you know, a lot of people, when they're start, starting out or throughout their careers, you know, famous artists, the story of Van Gogh, people who went through their life without ever selling a work or sold one, you know, painting at a cafe to pay for a, you know, a bar bill. The, the reality is that's easier to do than not. And if you have passion for your art, you're willing to have another job or two to pay for your ability to do it. And if you're lucky, things take off and you have a career where you can earn a living doing it. Yes. Yep. That's, that's how it goes. Not for the faint of heart. What inspired you to be a maker, a designer of experiences, which is, I guess, more of a broad term for what you do. You're designing experiences, designing you know, I don't really think it's any one thing. I've always derived pleasure from being able to show people new things that they haven't seen before. For the same reason that it gives me pleasure to see new things and create things that I've never seen before. So it's something which intrigues me personally, but the ability to share that experience with others, whether it's individuals or audiences, um, that to me makes it even better. It's just, wow, look at how this happened, followed by, wow, look at this, how did this just happen? So 
I think that it's the novel experience and being able to share those experiences with others, which is what motivates me. And then along the way, seeing other people who do that really well that you can learn from and you know, function as whether intentional or unintentional mentors, which allow you to hone your craft. That was at the core, just the genuine joy of showing something that they've never seen before. I mean, that's, I think, I think that right there, you just, get, you just gave away the secret. The wizard has revealed the secret because the big secret there is you genuinely care. I mean, because without that genuine caring and, and joy and excitement to, to say, hey, look at this new, th look at this cool thing. Look, I, I want to show you this wonderful thing that you've never experienced before. You wouldn't be going to the nth degree to, to have this amazing team and spend all this time and probably pour so much money into projects, some that flop, some that are amazing, but you keep on doing it because you, that's your purpose, basically. That's your purpose. You're always wanting to show that. Share, not show, but share. Share this unique experience. Who inspired you to be a maker? Because you said that you had some mentors and people that you learned from along the way. Well, I mean, again, there is no one person because right. there's some people that work well with a specific person being their mentor and they can look back at it. For me, it was really just doing things, volunteer to work places for nothing. You know, if you think I'm useful, you can pay me something so I can eat, um, but you know, not necessary. And I found that it, like everyone I worked with, I tried to learn from them in a way. And whether that way was, this guy's a jerk, be sure you don't turn into one of those and you come across those as you, you can, know. That's something to learn right there, yep. Or gee, this person isn't all that talented, but they're very, very nice. And it turns out that niceness has been valuable to them in getting people to help them then succeed. So, you know, you, some people again, learn from one mentor. For me, it's literally everyone I've ever worked. You know, why is this person successful when they're not really very good? <laughs> so that's an interesting question, isn't it? Sure. They're just not that good, right? Yeah. They're okay, they're not bad, they're not terrible. Yeah, yeah but they're succeeding in a level which is disproportionate given their talent and ability. Well, that's interesting. Well, that's <laughs> it's frustrating to see that. It's like, man, what, what, what are they doing that I'm not? Is their smile? Is it, you know, what is it that does it? Marketing. And, you know, well, maybe, but that's something to learn from, right? And say, Absolutely. How can I use that knowledge? Or gee, this person does one thing really, really well, and just paying attention to that one thing, you know, uh, turns out to be useful. So from my perspective, that was how I learned. It was from a whole collection of people. And, you know, it doesn't matter if the person was a PhD physicist or, you know, a boat builder or a machine shop manager or an artist or a local house painter or you know a repair guy to me what could you learn from each of them like how did this person yep. cut that wire how does this person do those other things all of those you put together and can become part of your repertoire or become part of whatever i do don't let that become part of my repertoire i mean johnny carson said something 
I thought was very interesting. And people these days mostly don't know who he was, but a very famous talk show host. I know Johnny Carson. Come on. Okay. Well, you'll find a lot of 16-year-olds don't. <laughs> well, for all the, well, not even, I'm a millennial and I know John, Johnny Carson. I mean, Johnny Carson is epic. He's, he is the, I mean, he's basically the original king of, of late night, the modernish king. I mean, I guess there were talk show hosts before him, but I mean, he was like the big, I mean, I know Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson was a, was a practicing magician, sleight of hand artist. He had multiple magicians on his show. Uh, many times, you know, so yeah. yeah, Johnny's great. And so, you know, someone once asked him, well, you know, you're so good at this stuff and, and all of that. What's the secret? A little like the question. And his comment, and I forget the percentage, but I think he said 80% of it is getting the audience to like you. And so yes. and that was a very powerful statement that, well, gee, if they like you, they're on your side and you want you to, that you to succeed. So if a joke bombs, it's kind of fun to watch it bomb and his reaction to it and so forth. Whereas with other people, you just groan and say, God, this guy isn't very good. You know, this thing, you know, bomb. So, you know, I think that applies to a lot of things in life. If you can get people to like you. And totally. You treat them well, or is that because you are courteous to them or you don't treat you treat them in your performance space as guests rather than as attendees or audience members because you treated guests differently the reason at disney all of the people who come to the parks are guests and all of the people who greet them and work with them are cast members is because you treat guests differently than you treat visitors and if you're a cast member the assumption is that you're on stage and you're playing a part and you need to perform that part. And so just simply setting up those relationships based on two words has been a big part and sticking to it and believing it of the success of the Disney theme park experiences. So the success of the Disney theme park is tr just treating people as guests. Um, is, is that correct? That's part of it, um, but that sets up a relationship. Okay. Uh, you are charging them a lot of money to go to a Disney theme park. Oh yeah, and worth it though, well, well worth it. But what you said is exactly the point, is that you have to just barely exceed the toughest person's expectations, right? So if you widely exceed it, you probably go out of business because you can't afford to widely exceed it. Okay, okay. If you, you know, take the toughest guest who's expecting you to do seven, and in fact you do eight, seven and a half, nine or ten, well, they're going to say, "Gee, that was a lot of money, but I got to hand it to him. I really got my money's worth." Which was your reaction? Absolutely. Now, other people may just be totally blown away. You know, Disney detractors may say, "Well, this isn't the real world." Well, my view of that is, of course, it isn't the real world. <laughs> That's the whole point. Oh, and, you know, you got the real world. So, you know, the idea that Disney provides a optimistic view of the future. And right. Experiences that bring families together. Yeah. I think that's actually a meaningful contribution in the world. Yes. Well, I mean, so many great, so many great family memories were made at Disney. Just, just stories to tell for, for, for years down the line, just remember this part of time when we went to Disney and we, you know, we saw our son grow up and that was a part of his, it's really deep 
memories. And it's, those, are, those are worth a lot. Those are worth a whole heck of a lot because, you know, people throughout their life, they have good memories and bad memories. And you, if you can contribute to their good memories or their great ones or their life-changing ones, perhaps, you know, you change the whole paradigm of how they view life, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And that's that you're, you're in the paradigm shifting business, just like a sleight of hand performing magician. You're, you know, working with Disney, creating concept vehicles. You're constantly shifting the paradigm of, well, what is the standard? Who knows? Let's, let's figure out a new one. Well, what, you know, kind of like, um, I don't know, you know, li like it or not, the, the Cybertruck with Elon Musk, you know, that was pretty controversial. 50% hated it because he said it was ugly. The other 50%, well, trucks have looked the same way for so many years. Let's radically change it up. So s similar kind of thinking, right? Exactly. Yeah, radical change. All right. Uh, finally, well, yeah, just got a couple more here. Is there anybody that you look up to? Well, you're probably going to say a lot. Are there any specifics that you can think of that you look up to in the, the makerspace innovation design community? Well, I mean, to me, the ones that I tend to look up at are either the artists who create beautiful things and or things that capture your imagination or the people that are very clever and great craftsmen where just the sheer build quality of something is superb when you look at it you know you want to touch it you want to feel it you want to do that um, so i don't think a specific one comes to mind because again there are lots of them but okay. what they have in common to speak to me is they have to show me something through their work that I found particularly compelling. Now, it could be because they're eloquent about speaking about their work, about when they talk about it, it gives you additional insight that you might not have come to on your own, but learning that opens up something so you realize, oh, well, that's pretty, but it's actually much more important than just being pretty because it's also functional and maybe functional in a multi-dimensional way that wasn't obvious to or you hadn't thought about. Like, you know, if you find out someone has just built a car and it's super fast and zero to 60 in three seconds and you're saying, wow, that's it. And, you know, it, and they, you, they tell all about the performance. And by the way, it's also the safest car ever built and it's three times as fuel efficient as any other that's been built. Well, that takes what you thought you were focusing on, which was the performance, the acceleration, the, the cornering, and says, and by the way, it's very safe. Well, that's unusual because usually if you're building very high performance cars, um, yeah. it's going fast. That's the motivator rather that's than it. The of it. And yeah. then if, oh, by the way, it's, you know, this thing goes supersonic and it gets twice the fuel mileage of yeah well then you're saying wow well that you know a the fact bonus. that thought about it and achieved a way to make it work just makes it more interesting or even that they were thinking about it and didn't achieve it but they were thinking about it and attempting to achieve it i mean that makes it interesting too yes are there are there any and again i know this may be hard to pin down an exact answer as we wrap up here, are there any resources that you would recommend to people out there that want to change their thinking a little bit to, to stop being so stuck in the construct and start shifting their own 
paradigms. Perhaps, I know this might be hard, but perhaps there's a book or some kind of something that, that maybe somebody can start with, uh, just to give them a little taste of that. A lot of ways. I think, first of all, experience the things that excite you. And if you don't know what they are, experience a lot of things till you figure it out. Okay. So if you're interested in visual effects, go see movies. And if you're interested in film, see film and see not only the films that you like, and by the way, who are the great directors? So you find out, oh, these, you know, 2001 and Dr. Strangelove and Paths of Glory and The Shining were all done by this guy named Stanley Kubrick. What's this guy about? Well, he was the youngest magazine photographer ever at 16. And, you know, he's American, but he lived in England and, 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 and that gets interesting. Well, who was his favorite filmmaker? So might you want to know who your favorite filmmaker's favorite filmmaker was? Or you like John Carpenter's movies or that, or you know Coppola's movies. Find out what inspired and motivated them. Them, and, yeah. And you'll hear about films like Battleship Potemkin, which you probably never heard about. And you'll I see- I personally it. have not, no. I... Well, exactly. Well, it turns out, and many top directors thought that's one of the best films they've ever seen. So that ought to say, let's get Battleship Potemkin and see what the big deal is about. Heck yeah, man, that's right. First big movie I did effects on was a Ken Russell film called Altered States. And his favorite movie um, was, you know, a David Lynch movie, which was called Eraserhead, which I had never heard of at the time. And this is one weird movie. If you know, <laughs> it's a really interesting, weird movie. Sounds and, like it by the title. Well, and it's one which gets some of the best reviews and the worst reviews. Worst film I've ever seen, best film I've ever seen. <laughs> films that were on the worst films ever done, uh, <laughs> such as Plan 9 from Outer Space, which was done by Ed Wood. Well, there was a whole movie done about Ed Wood doing Plan 9 from Outer Space, and it's become an enormous hit as a cult classic, even though people said it's the worst film <laughs> It's so but, bad, it's good. See some of the worst films ever made, not just the best films. Whole ever made. spectrum. So let's see if you can find out why. Then you have this thing called the internet that most people hopefully have heard about. Which <laughs> is great research to learn about it. But right. again, I, to me, it's if you're going to be working in an artistic realm, rather than worry about what made it motivates you, just find the things that you react to positively, whether it's great films or filmmakers look into who did them. Gee, that film looks particularly great. Um, Kubrick film looks particularly great. You look up the director of photography, but then you realize all of Kubrick's films look great and he started as a photographer. And so clearly his hand and eye is an important thing in every Kubrick film as to how it looks. So on one level, you can credit his DP, um, but do a little research. Did they get along? Did they fire them? Did they do the other stuff? So where does this stuff come from? And then what motivated them? What got them excited? So I think the advantage of these things like the internet is it lets you drill down, learn about these histories, and that's how you build a life and how you build a set of things that as an artist or as an experimenter or as a maker interests you. And uh, you know, the fact that you make things 
what do you do? I mean, people have been making things, and now we have this big thing. Oh, it's about makers and maker spaces. <laughs> I got a newsflash for you. People have been making things for a long time. Since the they, Stone Age, right? <laughs> exactly. And they've been literally, and it's called the Stone Age because they use stones to make things. <laughs> right. The idea that this is some new revelation of materials <laughs> or other things. Oh, look, makers, you know. Well, congratulations. If it makes you feel better to believe that, that's great. Confetti. Exactly. But people have been making things for a long time. And, <laughs> yeah, um, that is true. A long time and bringing them to life for a long time and animating them for a long time. And so the key is how do you benefit from history and whether that is what excites you or where you find your passion or you find people living or dead who you can emulate their process, technique, how they thought about things, or not emulate it at all, but just use it to enhance your perception of what good or great is. Because if you don't have standards to understand right. what constitutes great or better, then it's very hard to understand where you're going. Right, right. I mean, Blaine, for instance, he's modern day Houdini. That's how people describe him. Well, he got a lot of his inspiration from Houdini. He clearly went and he clearly did his history work him and you know consulting with his friend and uh, Bill Kalush, who knows a lot about a lot of history and everything. Uh, yeah, he went back in time. So Bran is telling uh, my viewers and listeners, just go back in time. Use the internet. It's there. It's free. It's amazing. And just go back in time in history. Look at look at all the greats of the past. Get inspired, and then find what you react positively to. And that's a good sign. That's a direction that you want to explore. Great tips there. So, uh, Brand, this, man, this has been one heck of a experience here, tapping into your mind. Uh, I think my viewers and listeners will definitely get a lot out of this interview. And before you vanish into thin air or vanish into the, the, uh, the Pepper's ghost illusion, where can people find more about you? Besides Wikipedia, of course. I mean, for somebody who's never heard of you before, where would you suggest they go? Uh, actually, I don't. It's, I suggest they get a life and <laughs> interest them. <laughs> okay. They want to know about my various lives. The internet is a, as reasonable place as any to start on it. But okay. um, I don't look there, so I'm not sure why they would want to. <laughs> okay. So... Um, I don't know how else how to answer that outside of uh, if if anybody's really serious, they'll find who you are. I guess is that the best? Sounds entirely sensible. Okay, I'll I will leave it at that. Well, this has been an exciting, insightful interview with the one and only Bran Farron, and I really do appreciate your time being a part of this show, making magic. You've helped make millions of people's lives a lot more magical most likely through your contributions to Disney and and art and technology and whether you believe so or not if anybody looks at what you've done I think they will agree that in some way you're helping to shape the future so thank you for all that you do and thanks for being on the program happy thank to have you, you here it's been a pleasure and pleasure to talk to you and by extension your audience oh absolutely absolutely and you guys have been watching another episode of the Making Magic podcast. We'll see you on the next one.